0: Hello and welcome to The Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I am your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your bloodstream correspondent, belief producer, your new best friend and
1: co-host for today, James Maple, reminding you to please speak with the healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions.
0: Amy's out. James is with us today. And uh, Amy, we don't know when we're going to get her back. She's on some international production at the moment with Save One Life. Actually, we do know when we're going to get her back. She's just far away right now. So James, we are very happy to have you here with us today. Happy to be here today, Patrick. On today's show, the Bloodstream podcast hosted a session on diversity, equity, and inclusivity as part of the National Hemophilia Foundation's Bleeding Disorders Conference last month, a conversation that included community members Amina Iftikhar, Mosey Williams, Connie Montgomery, and Marissa Melton. You'll hear the audio from that session coming up in just a little bit. We also have the latest installment of Let's Talk, Bloodstream's mental health segment hosted by our very own Josh Bragg and made possible by Sanofi. Today's focus, living in the moment, something that I could always use a little more work on, and we'll round out today's episode with just a bit of news, all that, and even some more on today's episode. Welcome to Bloodstream.
1: Listeners, as always, thank you for joining us here on Bloodstream. If you haven't already, please hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. where you listen everywhere episodes of bloodstream can also be listened directly from the bloodstream media facebook page or streamed from the episodes page on bloodstreammedia.com wow as always if you've got suggestions for topics or guests or if you have questions for patrick Amy, or more importantly, me, (laughs) ping us on social media or email us at mailbag at Mm bloodstreammedia.com. And if Amy were here, as we all know, she'd also take a moment to mention Bloodstream Media and Believe Limited are almost always casting for something. Almost always. So if you've got a story to tell and are curious about opportunities to share it, email us. Once again, that address is mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com.
0: Well done. And listeners, I also want to remind you that the Bloodstream podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Yes, that's right. Takeda. Takeda's got this website, BleedingDisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds. James Maple? I support that. And they are dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey, wherever on that journey they may be. You can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, just in case you need it, that's bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream Podcast, I would just like to say, thanks, Takeda. Gracias, Takeda. So, James, there's some good timing to your stepping into the co-host role today, given that you led the prep and actual hosting of the conversation on DEI with Amina, Connie, Mosey, and Marissa. I sure did. So what can you share with the listeners about your experience hosting that panel?
1: Hosting the panel was an incredible experience. It was great to have such a diverse panel there and a wide range of people in the audience as well. So it was great to kind of have that room and that safe space to share our, you know, deep, deep thoughts.
0: Mm. What would you say, without necessarily stepping on what we're about to hear, most surprise you? Is there anything that was particularly notable or surprising to you from the conversation?
1: From the conversation, I'd say, this is gonna kind of put things into perspective from where we were sitting as the hosts and panelists. There was almost like a wave or a, a wash over the room when we would mention a topic and you see the audience collectively nod. Mm. So seeing that audience reaction and how deep into conversation they were with us, even though they weren't having the conversation, mm-hmm. it. It was great to see everyone in accordance with each other and really listening and learning from our experiences
0: and listeners obviously you weren't in the room maybe you were but in listening to the episode i'd hope that you'd be able to kind of hear in people's sharings the 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 connectivity that james is speaking to so hopefully you can kind of sense that in what you're about to hear is there anything that you would do differently if we have a similar opportunity to host a panel like that in the future
1: I would say I would love to do a, a blind questions kind of thing or like an audience Ooh. suggestions type of thing. I find that, you know, talking about topics like this can be very difficult for people and they can be a little hesitant to even pitch a question. Mm. So I think having like a method for people to submit questions that we can answer live on stage would be a great tool for us to utilize in the future.
0: I like that. Yeah, that's a good suggestion. And lastly, is there any other major takeaways that you had from attending your first NHF BDC in general?
1: Yeah, I would say this is a very well welcoming community there was just walking around the bdc space the the conference hall Everyone smiling and saying hello come talk to me so i was i was pleasantly surprised at how welcome how welcoming everyone was there and i am excited to do it again next year
0: good i'm glad to hear that that's refreshing you'll get to hear the panel in just a little bit we're going to get to that after a quick news update and all that's coming right after this quick break The Bloodstream Podcast is brought to you in part by a new educational gene therapy resource from CSL Behring called Heme Evolution. As gene therapy research continues for people living with hemophilia B— CSL Bering has developed an educational website called Heme Evolution that allows visitors to explore the advancing science around gene therapy and the potential to address unmet needs in some people with this condition. Gene therapy is an innovative approach to treatment for a medical condition by introducing a new fully functioning or working gene into the body or by turning off or changing the gene that is causing the condition. For people with hemophilia B, gene therapy has the potential to sustain blood clotting ability. To learn more, check out www.hemevolution.com. Thank you to CSL Bearing, and remember to check out www.hemevolution.com, or click on the link in the program notes. Okay, quick news and then the panel. There's just one story that I want to underscore here for you listeners, and I'm going to read directly from Fierce Pharma's recent article. It's titled, Hemophilia Gene Therapies from Biomarin CSL Pick Up an Early ICER Endorsement. And the article starts like this. Even at a hefty price tag of $2.5 million per treatment, oncoming gene therapies can be the most cost-effective way for patients with hemophilia types A and B to deal with their condition. That's the conclusion of the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, or ICER, in a draft evidence report released on Tuesday. Okay, so what is ICER? Here's a little bit of background. They were founded in 2006 and became a nonprofit in 2013. ICER has become the nation's nonpartisan, independent, go-to resource for objective evidence about the value of healthcare in the U.S., ICER's appraisals of more than 100 drugs for more than 50 medical conditions, in addition to multiple devices and diagnostics, have demonstrated that rigorous, transparent analysis and application of evidence to clinical effectiveness and cost can align the price of care with the benefit it brings to patients and families in the United States. ICER's ultimate goal is to improve access and affordability of treatments while retaining the incentives necessary for future innovation. Fair price, fair access and future innovation that is from icers website so that's the context of who icer is over the last four months i'm back to the article now this independent organization compared biomarins roctavian for hemophilia a and csl bearings uh, i always hate saying the names a trot <laughs> i'm not even going to try but csl Behrings gene therapy for hemophilia b against commonly used therapies for the bleeding disorders Those two therapies are not only more effective, according to ICER, but in the long run, they are also less expensive. Here's a quote from ICER. The gene therapies have large cost savings associated with them, with very large lifetime costs associated with both the treatments and the comparators. In addition, the gene therapies are associated with higher quality of life scores and lower bleeds. Just by comparison, later in the article, It notes that ICER assigned a, quote, placeholder price of $2.5 million for each of these one-time treatments based on the average price of other gene therapies. And they compared that to the annual cost of hemophilia medications currently available, such as CSL's Adelvion, which goes for about $750,000 annually. Bioverative's Aprolix, which goes for about $740,000 annually. Novo Nordisk's Rebion, which goes for about 713, Genentech's Hemlibra, 639, and Pfizer's Benefix, 565. So their thought is that at 2.5 million for a one-time treatment that shows in their analysis, stronger, better health outcomes, there's also more financial incentive. And that is essentially as that description of ICER hopefully made clear, what ICER is intended to do. Does the value of this treatment to the end user, the patient, match with what its value is on the marketplace. And can we balance what fair price and access means while still driving future innovation, making sure that these companies are incentivized to develop new drugs? That's sort of ICER's place. And this article is meaningful because it only came out this report from ICER just in the last couple of weeks, this article is from September 14th, and this is yet another step towards seeing ultimately the approval of gene therapies in the United States. Pricing has been a big part of the gene therapy conversation for the last number of years, and this analysis from ICER, now published, now public, is just another indication that we are going to see gene therapies on the market sooner than not. So I did want to get to that story as it's important, though you know, there's not too much more there to talk about. James, I don't know if there's anything from that that you would like to respond to or comment on.
1: All those words you just
0: said looked very difficult to pronounce. So tip my hat to you for that one, sir. Thank you. And uh, there's a handful that I just decided we weren't going to even try. So anyway, there's a link in the uh, program notes if you want to check it out from Fierce Pharma. And with that, let us get now to our panel hosted by James. This is our NHF BDC panel on diversity, equity, and inclusivity for people impacted by bleeding disorders. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you learn from it and stick around afterwards for the latest Let's Talk Mental Health segment as well. This next segment on diversity, equity, and inclusivity is made possible in part by the folks over at Pfizer who have a question for those in the bleeding disorders community impacted by sickle cell disease. If you have sickle cell disease, how often do painful crises have you visiting the doctor? Pfizer is now enrolling a research study of an investigational medicine that may help to prevent pain crises caused by sickle cell disease. If you have seen a healthcare provider for two or 10 sickle cell crises in the past year, you may be able to participate. To speak with the study team, visit clinicaltrialscd.com. With your help, we can pursue new treatment options for sickle cell disease. Learn more at clinicaltrialscd.com. We are live at the National Hemophilia Foundation's Bleeding Disorders Conference. Live it's day three four seven, hard to say, different for everyone. But it's late in the game, and that said, we have got a very excited room of attendees here for our Diversity, Equity, and Inclusivity session titled "Real Talk with the Bloodstream Podcast." Are you all ready for a great session? <laughs> Uh, Before Amy and I get started, would like to mention that we are joined here as uh, discussed in our preamble by our colleague, Mr. James Maple, who is going to be uh, the host for today's conversation. He is the latest Bloodstreams correspondent and one of our colleagues at Believe Limited. James, welcome and how are you, sir?
1: I am excellent. Thank you all for having me. I'm excited for this to be my first like in-live BDC and my first like real correspondent job for Bloodstream. So Tell thank us you a little bit
2: me. about yourself, James, in like 30 seconds.
1: Okay, very quickly. Uh, this is all very new to me. I come from the world of music. I've worked in music administration for about 12 years. I'm from D.C., so I can talk very fast. Um, I um, was thrown into the mix about nine months ago with Believe, and it has been an incredible experience. I've learned so much, and I have learned a lot about this community and I felt welcome in it in every way possible. So thank you for having me. Thanks, thanks, thanks,
2: thanks. Uh, Kick off here. Everybody in the room and listeners back at home, remember to subscribe to the Bloodstream podcast. There's a QR code in the room. Now that we all know how to do QR codes because we had a global pandemic and we had to eat at restaurants, Uh, Mm. feel free to subscribe. We would love for you to start listening bi-weekly. And of course, this conversation is going to be on the podcast coming up in a few months. So Patrick, uh, a nice yellow shirt by the way.
0: Thank you very much. I was wondering if you were going to comment on it or if I was going to have to break in and say something. (laughs) This is my most, it's called ranch wear. It's the only piece of wardrobe I have called ranch wear, so I generally don't wear it, but when I come to Texas, I bring my ranch wear.
1: I think it's appropriate.
0: I think it's appropriate. Thank you, James. Yeah, you got it. You got it. This is why we get along real well. (laughs) All right, I'm going to peel out, let you start the conversation. Audience, if you have questions, again, feel free to write them down, but if you also just want to tell them to me quietly as the discussion's happening, wave me down, I'll come and join you. So with that, James Makeable, uh, please take it away.
1: All right, all right. Well, thank you all again for having me. Uh, Myself and Amy will be taking care of the discussion today, and we are going to be discussing uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, we have three guests by my side here. We also have another guest on the phone, Miss Connie Montgomery. So, I want to start actually with our guest at the far end of the panel, Miss Marissa Melton. Now, Marissa is a recent graduate of Baylor University with a master's in public health. She's also A proud mama of a one Jasper now Jasper is actually a miniature schnauzer but he (laughs) deserves all the love in the world and that is her baby and we are going to respect that okay so Marissa is um, the as I said the health equity inclusion and diversity specialist at NHF and if you could Marissa tell us the importance of DEI in your profession
3: absolutely and thank you for inviting me to be here today DEI is definitely my passion project and something that I truly believe all persons need to be involved in or at least be aware of. At NHF, DEI, or or HETI, excuse me, our Department of Health, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion is focused on both initiatives internally to our organization and externally to the community. So our main mission, and we are the newest department, we've came together in 2021, um, and our mission is to ensure equitable access for all persons, advocate for all persons who are limited by social determinants of health and other barriers. These barriers, for example, could be race and ethnicity, age, abledness or disabledness, things like that, even socioeconomic status. Those all limit the way that we can interact and engage with our healthcare. If you do not have a car that can get you to your doctor's office, you won't be able to get to the doctor, right? So things like that, and our mission is to ensure that pockets of people, whether that be separated by race, socioeconomic status, as I said, have access, and we, it's our mission to, um, to ensure and kind of bridge that gap and meet persons where they are, and that's what health equity is all about, is that we all start somewhere different, and it's not easy, it's not okay enough to just say everybody gets the same. Because we all start somewhere else, right? Um, If you don't have health insurance, you need to first pass that barrier before you can then go to the doctor, right? So we are focused on, as I said, meeting you where you are and communities where they are. So that is the brunt of my information. Thank
1: you so much, Marissa. I appreciate that. Next in line, our, our, our guest is going to be Mr. Mosey Williams. So, Mosey, if you could, in your introduction, tell me a bit about yourself, what's your connection to the
4: bleeding disorders community, and your professional role as well. Hello, everybody. My name is Mosey Williams. I grew up in Oakland, California, so I'm from California, uh, born and raised there, and um, have severe hemophilia A with an inhibitor. That's my connection to the community. also have two brothers uh, with hemophilia, severe hemophilia a, and my mom is a carrier. In addition to that, I'm currently working as a hemophilia social worker in Northern California as well. And um, it's a role that I really appreciate the opportunity to have to give back to our community and to, and to help our patients out with bleeding disorders. And it, it became a passion through my own life and my own experiences. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Mosey.
1: And last, my new my new best friend here, Amina. We, we met uh, just a couple of days ago. We've uh, hit it off quite well. So, Amina, you could, same questions, tell us um, your connection to the bleeding disorders community and your professional role as well.
5: Hello, my name is Amina. Um, I am a carrier and a mom of hemophilia. So, um, that's my connection with the community. And my professional role is um I am a social worker, a healthcare social worker. I don't work with hemophilia, but I work with people with chronic conditions. So that's what I do uh, as a professionally.
1: Okay, great. Thank you, thank you. Um, And lastly, we have um, a guest who is on the phone. And Ms. Connie Montgomery is an amazing soul and we hit it off greatly on a Zoom call. And I want uh, Connie, if you could introduce yourself, tell us your connection to the diabetes disorders community and your professional role as well.
6: Hello everyone. I'm excited and delighted to be with you guys via phone um, for the bleeding disorders community. My name is Connie Lee Montgomery, and I have Factor 7 deficiency, and I'm a global ambassador for bleeding disorders. I am extremely active in the healthcare arena nationwide as a retired occupational therapist, author, consultant, program developer, and patient and family advisor. I am honored to spend this time with each of you, and I look forward to this conversation on diversity, equity, and inclusion and just plain belonging and being a member of the community.
1: Right? I told you. It, Connie will take us to church, okay? will take us to church. Now, Connie, if you could as well, um, I want you to tell us a bit about the, the narrative that she wrote for us. Um, Connie, was a, Connie was able to describe her life and some of the challenges that she faced um, over a Zoom call a couple weeks ago. And it was such an impactful mo- moment for us on the call. We felt that it deserved to be spot, uh, spotlighted a bit more. So, Connie, if you could, could you tell us a bit about uh, your experiences um, throughout your life?
6: Yes, I can. During my school-age year, I experienced embarrassing nosebleeds. Episaxes, as doctors called it, I could feel the river of blood beginning to flow, and I would excuse myself from class and hide in the bathroom until it stopped, usually in about 10 to 15 minutes. I made certain no blood was on my clothes, and I'd left the bathroom stalls as I'd found them. This went on for years, and I just dealt with it the best I could. Imagine living in fear of never knowing when the next bloody occurrence would happen. You can laugh here or smile humor and secrecy is definitely how i made it through those years however i do not recommend the secrecy it is too much of a burden to hide those things that could eat away at your peace of mind i would use all the tissue and paper towels i could find to clean up the blood this became my one to two times per week normal activity especially during the pubescent years i missed a bit of school and frequently bled on and through my clothes. All the while, I was always feeling cold due to anemia and tired. But I knew I had to press forward. My mother had become a single parent of four girls after 14 years of marriage. And she did not need any additional stress from me. My dad did not find a local job with his educational level. So years of him traveling with his job from state to state, my parents divorced. My mother got three jobs to support our family and never asked for help from our dad or look back. She was fiercely independent.
1: Thank you, Connie. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. (laughs) Um, Now, so I'm going to turn the discussion over to our panelists here and have a a first kind of reaction. So I'll start with, with you, Amina. What, um, what's your first reaction to Connie's story? I know it's, it's your second time hearing it, but I also want to know how it, how it relates to your own personal experience with your amazing son, who has an incredible podcast, I might add. Um, can you tell us about um, you know your first reaction to Connie's story?
5: So when I first time heard her story, I almost cried. Um, I can tell that we all can relate to Connie's story one way or another. There are so many... Aspects of her story that you know inspire you to do something, and uh, how I relate to her story is, I'm so grateful that um, my son was. I was raising him in a time when we don't have those challenges that Connie faced. But I know, you know, when you are different looking, uh, sometimes we have perception. We think that a person who looks differently than you, they are either less than you intellectually. Socially, or anyway, so I, I have faced those things several times, um, so I I don't want to go into details because some of those uh, experiences are not uh, pleasant that I want to relive or share. So
1: yeah. So uh, you know, as you can as you can tell, there are certain social drivers that can impact y- your your health outcome essentially. Certain aspects of life that can exist for us that can alter the way that we have access to care and I think that for you Marissa I think that you could speak to that a great deal with your position as an NHF uh, specialist so can you kind of what was your first initial reaction to Connie's story and and can you talk about some of the data behind those um, social uh, drivers as well
3: absolutely so and that was actually my first time hearing Connie's story I was not lucky enough to hear it before but it's very moving because it's one of many stories, right? That she, I know, is an African-American woman, um, clearly was telling us about her socioeconomic status growing up and how she did not have the support and feel like she could even reach out because there was so much going on. And that is unfortunately a reality for a lot of people and those drivers of health, as you can see, severely impact someone, that they're having nosebleeds for 15 minutes daily in school. Think about the education you're missing out on. Think about the social interactions that you are then missing out on. Only about 30% of our health is made up of medical care. So going to the doctor, taking medicines, things like that, treatments. Everything else is made up by your environment and your social interactions, these drivers of health. So a lot of people think, you know, maybe with hemophilia or, or any disease state look, you could look at, by taking medicine and going to the, to the doctor, that should be sufficient. But simply put, it is not. There are so many other factors and drivers that influence the way we can receive care. I've used a few examples already, but um, if you can't, if your English is your second language, you go to a doctor and they're using medical terminology that you don't understand, either because it's simply over your head or it's not in the language that you speak. If you are not then given the opportunity to ask questions and to understand what is going on with your own body, then those providers are failing you. Those drivers of health will absolutely impact the way you are able to be healthy. And it even reaches out into food insecurity. So if you um, access to gyms, I know I I do not live with a bleeding disorder, but I'm a very strong advocate and ally. And I know that it's recommended a lot that you should swim as opposed to other sports, correct? But if you don't have a community pool, or you don't, if your parents don't have a pool in their backyard, how can doctors just say, oh, swim, and you'll be fine? They don't, they don't have often, aren't thinking about those other things that we do worry about as patients in our day-to-day lives. So advocating for these connections and to help bridge this gap is the only way that we will truly push health equity forward and help, hopefully, with time, limit stories like Connie's. And I'm sure in this room here, many people have had their own horror stories, right, of having trouble accessing care. Most you shared some with me as well. So in figuring out how we can best support our communities and persons so that Connie is not you know another repeat occurrence and that we don't have to continue down this road.
1: I think that's an excellent point I think that um, understanding the history of the cruelty that we have uh, faced has been an incredible milestone for us essentially and you know as as a student of history myself I studied U.S. history in college and Again, we were on our Zoom call with Connie a couple uh, weeks ago, and we were talking about the history that has existed in the United States for people of color and their access to health care. And Connie, this is what I'm going to grab you again. If you could, Connie, I want you to talk to us about the, the history of uh, African Americans in the United States when it came to uh, health checkups. Well,
6: when it came to health checkups for African Americans in the United States, it was a terrible experience. The first health checkup for black men, women, and children came on the slavery auction block just a few miles down the road from where I currently reside in Charleston, South Carolina. People were poked and prodded and put on display almost naked with just a rag around the genitalia for a health checkup. So that is the initial experience of most black families in the United States with their ancestors to health care. And waiting to be sold to whatever Caucasian or white family was ready for them to work on their plantations in the antebellum South. So that was the first experience with a medical health checkup for most black people. And I'm certain that most of us have heard of all the other stories like Henrietta Lacks. The use of her HeLa cells is still stored today in uh, the laboratories for people to look at and work on, which was not given she didn't give her permission for them to be used in that way but they had been and of course the tuskegee syphilis study here again and james marion sims the modern-day father of gynecological services he did all of his work on enslaved women and without anesthesia for black and brown women that's the history
1: like I said, Connie will always take us to church. Okay, always. So, so in in one interesting thing in Connie's explanation is though the the past can seem quite cruel, those practices still exist today in different ways. You know, Believe Limited is working on a documentary called Deliver Us, and it focuses on um, black doulas and midwives. And one connection that I found. And listening to Connie and, and I, my own studies is, you know, black women are four times more likely to die during childbirth. And also, black women's um, pain threshold is often put into question. So, these nuances of, of subtle racism that exist in the healthcare system still permeate today, though they may do so in a subtle way, they're still there. So, that leads me to you, Amina. I'm curious to know if you have experienced any cruelty. In the healthcare system, specifically for for your son.
5: Yes, um, I will share an experience. When my son was born with hemophilia, he lost a pound, a, one pound of his birth weight in twenty four hours because of the bleeding. And I was told either I'm not pre- putting pressure enough on his foot because they poke his foot, and that's from where he was bleeding. Either I'm not putting pressure enough on his foot, that's why he's bleeding, or maybe the blood on his blanket is basically my <laughs> blood. So they asked me to change my pad several times, so it's, it's silly, again, somehow um, we have this perception, if a person again, who looks different than you, we think that they are less than you in all the ways, and I was treated so badly, and I didn't want to go back there again, but here I am, and I, I'm not going to stop it here. <laughs> that's,
1: what I'm that's great, that's great. and and my next question is for you, Mosey. One thing that I I have been thinking about quite a bit is is the evolution of systemic racism. So could you speak to how systemic racism and oppression in medical care have evolved from your perspective over time?
4: Well, thank you. Following up on um, the background that that Connie just gave, I think that even we look today, we say, oh, those things aren't happening now, but in different ways, whether it's uh, faulty research, I believe in the 80s, medicals research that said that uh, black people's pain threshold was higher and those kind of things. So it continued, even though it wasn't uh, the auction blocks as it was at the time previously. Another way that it looks different is, and you mentioned the movie that uh, Believe Limit is working on um, with uh, doulas and um, uh, providers to a- African-American women. Um, there needs to be culturally responsive care. Um, African-Americans in this country are one minority group that do not have an integrated health care system. But there are for other groups. So you can still see, although there have been advancements, there are still systemic things that for some reason just did not happen. And so to combat that, there needs to be culturally responsive care for all groups and for all those that um, are having challenges.
1: You know, I agree with that. And I think that it speaks to the point of um, uh, almost a cultural responsibility that we all have. And that leads me to our next topic in that I think we can all say that over the past couple of years, we've seen an evolution when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion. So why all of a sudden is this on on all of our minds, you know, and when these issues have existed for centuries, for centuries, they've existed in different ways and they permeate in different ways. And they're a bit more subtle now. But why is this something that we are all talking about nowadays? So I have a question for you, Marissa you know, how do we make the most of workplaces and community gathering places now speaking about DEI? And how do we keep people from tuning out or thinking that, you know, it's out of sight, out of mind? Because I'm not within that marginalized community, why should, frankly, why should I
3: care? Great question. Um, <clears throat> so I would first say to, to note that we, we all come from somewhere. I think I've said that already. We are, all have different backgrounds. And though the you know, racial majority in this country may be white. There are so many other millions of people here that we have a duty to also take care of. And so these meeting um, and understanding these different cultural groups and cultural competency is paramount because the way I was raised as a Latino woman is absolutely different than the way Mosey was raised versus Amina. And thinking about that then with my culture, you know, I have... Though I might have some distrust of the system, I guarantee Mosey has more. Or my cultural upbringing with my family's religion, that plays a lot into thinking about you know, comprehensive birth control or things like that. So we have to be aware and cognizant and competent of persons' cultures because without them, they will not trust you to care for them. And then you will not they will not engage and will not trust you to help them. And so understanding or at least asking the right questions. I think we're finally, you said a few minutes ago that, you know, its systemic issues have been here forever, but we're only now starting to see this overhaul of things. And it's because the right people are making noise. I think people are finally tired of being told, oh, that's just how it is. Sorry, you're just going to bleed. No, I'm bleeding and it is not okay. And you have to stop telling me that it is okay. There is something wrong. So finding, being your own advocate or finding people who will help advocate for you, whether that's a parent or a friend, somebody either from the same cultural group as you or, you know, grab another friend from a different group if you need to. But Make noise and do not resist. It is a continuum of change. And I will say that I've had a lot of questions this week of, well, why isn't it happening? You know, how can we get this moving quicker? It is a continuum of change. And we've all unfortunately started at other places. I think there are cities and persons who are more maybe in tune with some of these changes and are getting kind of the head start. But that's not to say that it shouldn't, you know, that it can't be done anywhere. We all have to start somewhere. And starting with simple cultural competency training and just asking the right questions. Knowing that, going into a room and knowing that you are not always going to have the answer and you will not know someone's experience and keeping that in the back of your mind. So when you're asking questions and you're engaging with people, when they tell you things and are finally able to confide about issues that they are having and, you know, it would be hard to talk about, I can't trust this nurse because she made a microaggression about my race to me. That is hard to share, but that is a barrier to care that would cause distrust in the system and then help cause someone to not get help. So make noise, and if you see something, say something. Simply put, I will say that all of the time, nowadays racism is not quite as blatant, I would say, especially in like the medical field or at least the workplace, it's a lot, it's implicit bias, right? And so those microaggressions build up over time and hurt so we have to make noise and if if you don't feel comfortable saying that like I said share that with someone call me at NHF I will throw hands you know like make noise because it is a a continuum of change and we are only at the beginning and we will not continue to progress unless all persons black brown white male female sexual orientations all of it unless we are all making noise for each other because we we, there is no predominant group. We are all, I'd really think it, all immigrants. We're from somewhere else, right? So we need to be there for each other. And understanding, it's very encouraging to see this room so full of people knowing that all of you are advocates and will say, hopefully, and step up when somebody needs.
1: You know, I think that's a great I And, uh, and it, it, it makes me think about, um, you know, how difficult it can be to share your perspective as a person of color to other people. And I, I know that oftentimes I've been told from my, like, I'll just be very frank, my white friends, and they're like, well, that's hard to listen to. I'm like, imagine how difficult it is to live it. Yeah. You know, that is an experience. I understand that in this moment in time, this can be a very challenging thing for, for some of us to, to grapple with, but there are others of us who have to live this experience every single day. So be uncomfortable, step outside of your circle. It's okay, that's how we learn. That's how I've learned. You know, we, I, you know as, a, as, a, as a black man in America, I don't have all the answers, but I can enlighten you from, from my experience and you can enlighten me from yours. I've learned tons of things and I've taught tons of things. I think that is, that's the precipice for change. That communication, that openness, that vulnerability is something that I think we should all carry with us to get us to that promised land that we wanna to get to. Um, and that leads me to my next question to you, Mosey. What's happening socially from your perspective that you think has led us to the impetus for the precipice that I just said, you know, what, what what's happening now that you think people are really starting to talk about the issues that we face?
4: I think it was, I mean, like we've talked about these issues have been happening for years, but I think particularly with, um, with the murder of George Floyd, it was that we were during the pandemic and we were all in our homes and it, it was on television front and center and we had to pay attention to it so like you mentioned earlier people tuning out or people uh, others saying oh I, you know this is hard to hear it was right there and we couldn't run from it for those that wanted to didn't want to deal with it and well people still try to explain it away but largely you could see that this was happening to someone and it was wrong and i think for the first time for a lot of people when you saw marches all over the all over the world people could see that this injustice happened i think Although we can, there are so many more names that we could name, I think in that particular situation, it was such that it was right there and people had to had to face it to some degree. And, um, yeah, I, th- I think that because of that, we are able to see it in a different way. And be, uh, repeating myself, we couldn't run from it. We, okay, now we have to address this and see this now. What needs to happen? Because this is not right.
1: It's America's original ugliest sin. And it still permeates to this day. But like I said a moment ago, it takes having those, those difficult conversations to, to, for us to move on.
0: Listeners, I hope you are enjoying this important conversation and we'll get back to it momentarily. I just want to take a moment to let you know that the Bloodstream podcast is brought to you in part by a new campaign from CSL Baring called Portraits of Progress. In the 1950s, life expectancy for people living with hemophilia was less than 20 years. However, over the past 70 years, the treatment landscape has evolved rapidly, giving patients new options and a new lease on life. CSL Baring and acclaimed portrait photographer Rankin have teamed up to chronicle the evolution of hemophilia treatment by sharing portraits of the incredible patients, caregivers, and professionals who are personally affected by the disease. Check out PortraitsOfProgress.com, a virtual photo exhibition, to learn more about the personal struggles and triumphs of the hemophilia community, and how the pace of progress in hemophilia treatment has transformed lives. From the days of minimal treatment options to the potential of gene therapy of today, this community has seen it all, with more hope than ever for the future. Thank you to CSL Bearing, and remember, check out portraitsofprogress.com by clicking on the link in the program notes. And now, back to the panel. I
1: want to actually pass the mic over to uh, my dear friend Amy to kind of get her perspective from a a chapter leader on allyship and and what that means from your perspective as a professional
2: I'm trying everything in my body not to make a white lady joke, like, oh, God, don't give the mic to a white lady. I will say from chapter leadership, we are in a position of service to our community. And I think as white men and white women, we are long overdue for a radical shift in our curiosity of just other other stories. And I think um, being curious and asking questions about someone's lived experience um, has a tenderness to it and an otherness to it. And if we can fight that internal urge inside to make it about us, I, I think it would um, serve our communities better. So if that's all I'll say. I, I, think, uh, I think we're long overdue. And uh, I thank y'all for sharing uh, your stories today.
1: Thanks, Amy. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I think that that leads us to, to our next topic, and I think it's probably a question that is relatively hypothetical. Um, I don't know if there is an answer, but as Amy just stated, it, it provides us a platform for conversation. And that question is, what comes next? Okay, we've gathered all the information, we've, we've had these conversations, what do we do next to get us to that point? And I think Marissa would be well suited to kind of address this this question specifically from the perspective of someone at NHF. So Marissa, can you speak to that question? And moreover, can you answer how can individuals help with the efforts of NHF?
3: Absolutely. So I think my first wish and want would be to get DEI task forces at every chapter in HTC you have an advocate or someone there for all patients, caregivers, family members, whomever to say, this is something that is happening to us, Let help me work through it. And then that, you know, obviously is a huge undertaking and I'm, all things would be pretty and wonderful, I think. But um, with that, as individuals within, you know, and this doesn't have to just apply to the bleeding disorders community, but advocating for others, like getting involved if you have walks or you have you know there are different cultural groups help talk about starting those and engaging just different populations because you're as i've repeated this a few times but experiences are different and you have to learn from each other in order to move all of this forward so i think getting for you know having dei task forces in hospitals as well we need that across the board in medical care to make it more inclusive and that's not just for thinking about the patients but we need to be hiring more doctors of color more nurses of color social workers things like persons like that who come from different backgrounds and can sometimes relate to the lived experiences but if it's simply you know we feel like we're talking at a wall I know sometimes but find the person your advocate find someone in your chapter in your HTC who can make help you make that noise and then As we progress, I I think we will start to see a lot more heady initiatives across the board. I mean, we're hoping for, we're talking, I would love to see like policy change, thinking about things like that, you know, Affordable Care Act and improving and expanding upon Medicare and Medicaid, things like that to ensure that we all, that money will not be a limitation, insurance will not be a limitation. So, yeah, just kind of starting that, making noise. And when you see um, or hear something even, Help, Lend a helping hand and learn from each other. I, I will say, I think we'll all put our foot in our mouth every now and then, right? <laughs> that we'll say something and, oh, that wasn't right. Take that opportunity to teach someone and then to actually learn and listen from that. I, there's a lot different, very different between listening and actually learning from it. But we need, you need to hear those stories from who we call subject matter experts. So you as people with different blood disorders who come from different cultures, backgrounds, speak different languages, XYZ, share your stories to help us build up and say, look, this is the need. We have this entire community of people who don't have access. And now then we can pump our funding at you. We can do things like that because this is the work. We are entirely, as you mentioned with the George Floyd murders, my department was created post-George Floyd for this exact reason that our organization looked internally and we said, whoa, we are not doing things right. We are not nearly as equitable and diverse as we want to be. So they brought on my boss and then eventually me to help move this message forward. And we are all, I call everyone heady champions. So champion, be a champion for yourself and be a champion for others. Talk about these, read up on things, listen to the Budstern podcast, read a book, how neighborhoods make us sick, learn about these gaps and then in your day to day life, start undertaking that because it, it we are gen- genuinely in a social movement towards this because a lot of people a lot of people are upset and I'm too and I hope you are too so that we can all progress you know
1: it's the first time I think I have ever hope someone was upset but in this case I think it's warranted right um, uh, Amina, I mean did you want to add a bit to that as well
5: yes I want to say one thing that it's not only NHF's job it's all of us job we all have to do our part We all have to take a step as individual identify what our own barriers are you know sometimes we we have and we don't see them until unless we sit down and think about those situations and things so do that you know evaluate yourself where your own personal biases are so you know we all have to work together one organization or institute cannot make everything change it's it's a combined effort we are way far from just sitting down and praying we have to do something we cannot just think we have to move and, you know, bring this change. So just, you know, I'm really happy that this room is full and I hope everyone is going to learn something from here and bring a change in their own life or someone else's life in their surrounding.
1: You know, I think that's a great point. And uh, I'm, I'm going to call out actually our belief COO, Robert Bradford. Um, he and I had a, a, a great conversation on, on an example of the importance of someone taking a stand when, when he didn't need to. Like Rob, Rob told me an example of something that he did and I, and I applaud him for it because he took a stand and he, put, he made himself feel uncomfortable, but he stood up for someone else in, a, in their moment of need. And I think that to, uh, to Butcher's Amina's point, it starts with each of us individually. Yes, what Marissa said, us having a task force would be a great idea, but that is a collective effort. It needs to start from within us. We need to all make that initial change ourselves and acknowledge the fact that things need to change, and not and be afraid to be an outcast for a moment. Sure, you you know I, you don't want me to. I mean, be the only person to be your cheerleader, but for the person being being led that means the world to them. It means the world to them because all too often we are almost put in a corner, and we feel so alone. So to have that one beacon of hope, that one voice, that one person who is uncomfortable with you for that moment. Is earth changing. It is earth changing. And that leads me to my next question for you, Mosey. What or what are what are ways that to that folks in their day-to-day life can can help with this effort?
4: Uh, I think it starts with what we've been talking about, having conversations with the people that we that we know. Because um what I've seen just anecdotally is when we see in society things happen, people tend to understand when there's a personal connection. You know, sometimes people are able to have empathy but sometimes people are not. And so if we're have, able to have a connection with someone and they can say, you know, this happened to my friend. I mean, I understood this, but now maybe more invested in finding out why. Um, and, and you mentioned, you know, we may not always say things correctly. You know, So showing grace to people when people are trying to understand, um, finding allies, the people that are, are willing to learn on this journey. I'll tell, share a quick story. Um, before I worked in hemophilia, I worked in a crisis counselor setting, and um, I had a patient that came in and it, I'd never met him. It was just random that we worked together or per- perfect coincidence as a young white male. And he, he came in, and he was just weeping and crying. He felt guilty about what was happening in society. Uh, the murders of unarmed black people. And he said, I know I didn't do it. It's not my fault. He said, but I've, I've benefited. I have the privilege. And he mentioned that his, his parents were racist. He said, but I didn't do this. And he was just crying and he, you know, and so we talked through it. He's, it was at the point where he was getting arrested because he would see uh, black people being um, stopped by the police and he would go up and fight the police trying to, you know, he's, he's trying to find his own way to stop the injustice he sees. But I mean, obviously, that's going to get him into trouble. And that wasn't the best response. So we were able to talk through that. But this is somebody who is trying to work through. He sees some of these injustice happening. So if we can find, you know, there are obviously more productive ways in terms of, you know, uh, going to town hall meetings, uh, supporting people going um, use uh, blogs podcast, things like this, as well. And I'll say for the hemophilia community, and this may be a, a step away from necessarily um, an individual response, I guess. Um, but generally, what we will happen is um, if a particular issue comes up, a mental health, and then we'll see we'll have presentations from our organizations, such as NHF, HFA chapters, uh, Pharma, so on and so forth. We need to start having these conversations and presentations about racial inequity and um, health equity all of those together we need to start having them on chapter levels and also um, with the other organizations as well um, and it's not the easiest subject to talk about you know some it but it needs to happen because the more that if all of the the representative groups uh, affiliated with bleeding disorders make these discussions happen then we can talk about it more people will be faced with it but that's the reality that's life and we have to deal with it
1: yeah, i agree with that uh 100 percent um i want to turn our um our last question of the discussion portion to to pass to connie um so connie if you could uh we're, we're kind of talking about um individual ways that people can can make and initiate change do you know of any specific ways that in your life that individuals have shown support and initiation of change from your perspective
6: as individuals of course let's continue to read research and study whatever we can get our hands on regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion. Also, there are specific websites that you can go to, like patient and family-centered partners. It's called PFCC Partners. You can go to their website. They have a whole section on DEI. That's a great place that you can go for outreach information. And when you're at your chapters and your program planning, consider the resources we have in-house there at NHF. Dr. Carrie Norris, uh, Christy Harvey Sims, Marissa Mellon, on this uh, panel. Consider using those individuals as resources. Or myself, who's the DEI chair at the Inspiration Foundation Board of Directors. Also, there's a group called the National Center for the Camden Coalition. They're coming out very soon with a module I've been helping out uh, with um, that will help practitioners and other healthcare organizations better serve those with complex care needs and Uh, social drivers that do impact their health care. Also, very soon, Believe Limited, I I am aware of, because I'm a part of that uh, project too as well. They have a documentary that's being filmed very soon, uh, funded by grant from Balmerin, that will be coming out, that will uh, just give you a little window or a peek into the lives of people that may be different from yourself. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Connie. Thank you. You know, and as we wind down the discussion portion of of our presentation here and uh, transfer over to Patrick for the Q&A portion, I just want to really buttress Connie's point. People of color are not a monolith. You know, the four experiences of of us don't represent the experiences of everybody that's within a marginalized community. That's why it's so important to take a moment to talk to somebody. Sit down and talk to somebody. Too often, we, we, have, we have such a wealth of knowledge, even within this room itself. You'd be surprised at the stories that you'd learn and experiences that you can grow from, from you just taking a moment and talking to someone. It's, it's, it's funny because the, the, the most basic thing that we do on a daily basis can solve much of our problems. And um, I thank you all for your time listening to our discussion. And I want to pass things over to Patrick for our Q&A portion of the presentation.
0: Amazing panelists, but also James Maple, everybody. What a great job moderating the discussion. Thank
1: you. I thank you. I thank you. Uh,
0: Quickly just want to reflect, you know, Mosey, I love that story you shared about the guy who, is that someone who came into your office? Was this in the work setting that that you were sharing? Um, You know, it it reminded me of, I had a lot of trouble with the concept of white privilege for a long time when I was a younger person um, because I didn't feel privileged you know growing up with hemophilia inhibitors, divorced parents, moving around not being able to do activities privilege wasn't a word that resonated with me until, and James you said something along these lines 10-15 minutes ago someone said to me when I was sharing this vulnerably and they were generously listening and they said now imagine all that was true and you were black and I thought oh I get it now and but it was only because I allowed also myself to be vulnerable and share like hey I struggle I get wh- I get it but I struggle with like wh- how it applied repl- that doesn't work and then somebody shared back and that changed a lot for me just that one little moment to your point about just have a conversation with somebody and I do want to underscore something Amy said too you know for for my fellow white people in the room we have to be part of the solution right this isn't ours to lead right we have to also be careful to not Overreach, I think, at times when we try to help. Appropriate allyship, which came up briefly, is important. But we also have to be willing to make mistakes. It's okay to make mistakes if you're doing something that in your heart you know to be right and believe in. You'll fumble sometimes, quickly apologize, quickly repair traumas. But if your heart's in the right place, we have to step into discomfort. We have to be part of the solutions. Um, that's part of our responsibility as human beings, in my opinion. With that said, would anyone like to ask a question or make a comment based on what they heard? I guess I could have predicted this. Lawrence Woolard's hand was up before I even finished the statement. So he'll buy time for everybody else to decide what their questions are. Go ahead, Lawrence, with yours.
7: Thanks so much, Patrick. Um, This has been an absolutely phenomenal session and panel, so thank you so much. And actually, I just want to make a call out to European colleagues. I've never engaged in a session around diversity, um, equity, and inclusion before. So I think that's a call out to our European partners to actually act on that. Um, I have two points. Um, PAGs clearly need to reflect the diverse communities in which they supposedly advocate for, Where's the accountability if there's a lack of engagement from seldom heard groups because they're not being reached, because these organisations don't know how to, or it's not even in their consciousness to even consider reaching out to these communities? So I think that's my first question. And then my second point is that I was recently, and I'm sure... Many people had this experience. I was recently invited to be part of this patient advisory board. Um, and they wanted six members. And, sh- and, and the colleague read out three of the names of which she invited, and then including myself. And I made the point that they're all white. And I said, have you even considered, obviously, having representation from black or ethnic minority communities? Didn't even... W- wasn't even there thinking about it, right? So... My question is, do white people have the right to speak on behalf of your struggle as much as do people without a bleeding disorder have the right to speak on my behalf as someone living with haemophilia?
0: So two great related separate questions. One on the accountability piece. What do we do when when it doesn't seem as though change is taking place at organizational levels? Who do we hold accountable, how, and why? I don't know if from an NHF or a nonprofit organization perspective that's something maybe that you could speak to us a little bit about, Marissa, and then we'll tackle that second piece about representation, allyship. That's a good point as well, I think.
3: So I will say it's difficult. Um, There, and I was actually just talking about this in my previous session there's this play between reaching the populations and getting feedback from them but also just not being able to reach populations appropriately. So a lot of what we do focuses around like community needs assessments and the hard part is often then to choosing if I if I, I don't know if that's the best word but like electing a community or hearing some community tell us like, like this is the issue and then we have to go in there and conduct that needs assessment and that is truly the best way that you have to ask the community what they need um, because if, if I wrote an intervention that helped I don't know secure more educational books on hemophilia for a community and they were like no 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 we need XYZ thing so you have to start with a community needs assessment and get that feedback when you are not it's hard when you honestly it's hard to not know when if you're not reaching the right populations i don't know if that just came up correctly but and that is honestly a lot of like word of mouth learning and just getting people on the ground asking people forming connections so a lot of what i try to do is like i know i'm based in denver and i'm at the national level so I'm asking chapters, I'm asking people that I meet, talk to me, send me an email, then I, because I don't I don't know what I don't know, right? And it's this disconnect, and I think a lot of it comes from mistrust as well of, well, why am I going to come tell you what I need if you didn't even know, or if you, you didn't even know something was wrong? I don't trust you enough to give me what I need. So it's honestly a lot of repairing of that relationship and then getting feet on the ground and improving stakeholder relationships with community, um, uh, other community organizations, with different chapters, with HTCs. It's talking and really starting the conversation and making sure you're in the right place and then asking them, is this the right thing? And every step along the way, evaluating, rewriting, anything like that, because we need the community's feedback. And I know it is hard to get. And we're still, like I said, it's a balance of trying to figure out who we need to talk to and make sure that we are not favoring or focusing on one group too much, if that makes sense. So it's a balance, and I know we're not always gonna be perfect, but we are trying and figuring out better ways of getting into these communities and asking these questions.
0: And then maybe to to Lawrence's second question, Mosey, if I could um, maybe refine it a little, and and I'll, I'll restate it as I understood it, and to you directly, I think that's a great point about can someone without a bleeding disorder, as Marissa disclosed up top, doesn't have a bleeding disorder, but I do believe that she can advocate my needs and represent me in appropriate ways. Likewise, I'd like to believe that there's ways in which I could represent and support Mosey in appropriate ways, but maybe Mosey, could you tell me from your point of view what that looks like? I have ideas, but can you tell me what appropriate support and allyship looks like?
4: First, thank you for the question and the clarification. Um, absolutely, I believe that um, all groups need allies for support. And um, even when we think about um, doing the civil rights movement, and this was something I learned recently in a training uh, for a previous job. But clearly, um, there were there were uh, white supporters who were helping within the movement, but this was hidden, and it was presented in a way so that people wouldn't think that. So they would think that there was this. There was just two groups against one another. But there was always this support in some ways, and so unfortunately, it filtered down to where we wonder if we can really help, right? And so. Of course, I would say, from my opinion, of course we should. It's always been happening, Um, and being a minority group, we would need it. I'm saying, as a black man, and also as a hemophilia, we we need the support of everyone else. What that would look like individually, um, as as simple as you know, just affirmation, support. I mean, obviously, to be donation, but I mean, just as a friend, somebody they may want to attend an event to learn more. just being there to support when I'm going through a bleed or whatever that might be, um, wanting to know more about it, being curious um, I mean that is one of the I'll um, say intervention but a way to work through a bias is through being curious about another group, Oh, you know, what is it about why I have these views from whatever I've been told or whatever I've been through and let me learn more about them as a person, as an individual and so those are a few things I think on the individual level but absolutely um, thank you for wanting to be an ally and already being that, so
0: Thanks, Mosey. Thanks again for the questions, Lawrence. Other questions from anybody? we got two, three minutes, so not too much time. So if
8: you got them, see one over here. Mr. John Ferrier, the mic is yours. Thank you, guys. So many of you guys may know that I'm in technology, right? So I just want to, you know, humble brag a little bit. So all my hires this year have been women of color, which I think is impressive. And they are all hired through panel. So it's not like I did anything special. So. When we talk about curiosity, I want to talk about openness. Um, obviously, my direct correlation for me is hiring practices. It's it's in encouraging culture um, that's open within uh, within a community of, of technologists, right? And you know, for me, the last learning—if I think eight years ago, as I started managing teams in technology—there's um, a lot of of sexism and a lot of uh, there's a bunch of white guys in a room making white guy decisions right and now today I lead teams across North America you know varying races varying religions and it's having that curiosity it's being open it's making a priority that when you're seeking people of talent to be open to everybody every color every background and uh and I'm very proud today that we're getting different results than we did for me eight years ago so it's more of a comment than a, a question, but that's, that's my, been my experience. So.
6: I just want to um, make everybody in the room of um, your boss's uh, TED Talk, uh, Heidi and Plain Sight. That was the most succinct, easy to understand, hard to digest, though, as a human, about um, everything that affects mental health. So I just, if anyone wants to go see Dr. Norris's TED Talk, it's called Heidi and Plain Sight. And it's probably one of the best things you can do for 12
0: minutes. I just want to let you know. Great call out, Debbie. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, so lastly, I'm going to give the mic to friend, former colleague. You've been in conversations like this before on the Bloodstream podcast, Alex Abreu. Uh, anything you'd like to ask or say to close us out?
9: How much time do I have?
0: You've bunch of time. We'll see what happens.
9: Okay. Um, I, I, I like this conversation. Um, I just want to make one um Note: I just want to know something. Language is really important. The language we use can reflect a lot of our values and also um, where we are in, in this conversation. And language has a lot of power, a lot of power. So when we say things like, why now? Why is this such an important issue now? Because we're finally making noise? No. My people have been making noise for a long time. We're just sick and tired of hearing the same stories of my people dying, of not getting treatment and not saying something like finally making noise, the right people making noise. We are ignoring all of the ancestors that have died because they were so loud and so clear and are gone. So it's 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 not about finally making noise. It's not about. It's because we're seeing it. It's because it's right in front of us. It's because we feel it. It's because we are tired of being treated like this. And we see the inequities all around us. So I just think, and I could go, on, but I just think. Um, There's just so much power in what what we say and the words that, that we use. We also have to be very aware of the comparisons that we make, and I'm gonna go somewhere that might be scary for some, but white supremacy has made us be in boxes. Latino versus black versus Asian versus white. And, and making it seem like we're all so, so different. Yes, we have cultural differences. Yes, we have different traditions, cultures, and all of that, but we are so similar. And if we just focus on our experiences and where we can connect, we can do so much more. So really thinking more of where do we connect? Where is the connection? What can we bring to the table? What are some of the experiences? rather than saying, this person has it worse than me or this and that, that comparison is so dangerous. We need to go away from that and I challenge all of us to start looking at where do we connect? Where is the humanity? Where do we, where do we come together? So then, then we can cre- create ch- change and perpetuate the things that we're looking uh, for the healthcare system or chapters to really look at and that's all in there.
0: Well, well said, Alex. Thank you, and thank you to everyone who's here. Thank you, Amina, Connie, Mosey, and Marissa for participating in that panel conversation. I'd also like to thank everyone in the audience who attended, and particularly those who participated during the Q&A. James, thank you so much for that steady and compelling lead as host. You truly did an excellent job.
1: I thank you. I hope you all enjoyed it as well. I want to give a special shout out to our panelists and all everyone in the room, really, who contributed to the conversation verbally or non-verbally. Just listening and engaging meant the world to all of us on stage, and I'm sure it means a lot to our listeners as
0: well. And I did hear in the immediate aftermath of that session, too, a number of nice comments, people coming up and saying like how valuable a session it was, numerous people saying it was their favorite session from the meeting, and that's in large part to your credit. So kudos to you, sir. Thank you, thank you. Listeners, I hope you took something from that dialogue perhaps it's gotten your wheels turning on how you can contribute to a more equitable and inclusive environment, not only within the bleeding disorders community, but within our world at large. So thank you all. And I do also want to thank Pfizer for their support of Bloodstream in this segment today. I'd like to again remind you out there who are impacted by sickle cell disease that Pfizer has a question and call to action for you. If you have sickle cell disease, how often do you have pain crises that have you visiting the doctor? Pfizer is now enrolling a research study of an investigational medicine that may help to prevent pain crises caused by sickle cell disease. If you have seen a healthcare provider for 2 or 10 sickle cell crises in the past year, you may be able to participate. To speak with the study team, visit clinicaltrialscd.com. With your help, we can pursue new treatment options for sickle cell disease. Learn more at clinicaltrialscd.com. With that, we will move into our final segment today. Let's Talk with Josh Bragg. Today's focus on being in the moment, being present, something that I and probably a lot of us feel is a constant work in progress. Absolutely.
1: Welcome to this month's Let's Talk segment. Let's Talk, a partnership between Bloodstream Media and Sanofi, aims to create an environment where we can have open, honest conversations about mental health and the bleeding disorder community. Let's Talk strives to shed light on the topics that are often invisible and not spoken of in the community and shares tips on how to care for your or a loved one's mental health. If you or someone you know has experienced feelings that have impacted your mental health, talk to your healthcare provider and find educational resources at letstalkmh.com. Santa Fe is proud to sponsor this podcast segment because they believe that each one of us has a story. Visit shareyourwhy.com, again, shareyourwhy.com to meet the Santa Fe core team member and hear from them and members of the community about their story and passion for the hemophilia community. Now, on to this episode's Let's Talk segment.
0: Doodla, 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 doodla.
10: Do I sound different? Maybe not, but if I do, it's because I'm recording this from a hotel in Africa. That's right, I've been on the road in Kenya for seven days and I just flew into Uganda for another eight. And so far, it has been an incredible experience. But also a whirlwind of faces, meet and greets, afternoon teas, musical performances, surprise interpretive dancing, wild African big game animals, and lots and lots of looking out the car window while we drive kilometer after kilometer after kilometer to arrive at a chicken farm. Or a shipping container barber shop, or a forest, to hear stories of people living with bleeding disorders in these places. It's been a lot to capture on video, and our tiny crew of Brad, Rob, Amy, and I have done our best to leave no story untold, including the story of us being here, which I've been making little TikToks out of. But every single day, actually, multiple times per day, I've had to remind myself to be present to put the camera down for a second and experience the joy of living in the moment. It's a hard concept for me, especially as someone who is required to, and prefers to, capture the experience with sound and video and still photographs. But having that occasional reminder has allowed me to be truly present on this trip in a way that I don't think I have been in the past. Let's talk. My last trip out of the country before the pandemic was actually Kenya. It was surreal stepping off the airplane over two and a half years later into the same city of Nairobi. It was like we were rewinding into the past and my expectations were that this was going to be a similar trip visiting hospitals and talking to doctors, but that trip back in 2019 was with the World Federation of Hemophilia and this trip here was with Save One Life. If you don't recognize those names, Let me help out a little bit. WFH, or the World Federation of Hemophilia, is an international nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the lives of people with hemophilia and other genetic bleeding disorders. It educates people with bleeding disorders and lobbies for improved medical treatment. WFH works with governments that have set up an infrastructure to support donations of medicine to help close the gap in treatment possibilities between countries that vary in developmental stages. Save One Life, on the other hand, improves the quality of life and future for people with bleeding disorders in developing countries through direct financial assistance. They have sponsorships and scholarship programs where anyone can sponsor a human being with a bleeding disorder, and it helps individuals access things like higher education, medicine, and in general, living a better and longer life. I'm getting a little in the weeds here. I've copied and pasted some of this from the web, and some of it's in my own words, so I definitely encourage you to look at the websites for both World Federation of Hemophilia and Save One Life. Both of these organizations are equally incredible and important in different ways. But the point is, traveling with each organization provides a remarkably different experience, as I've noticed this past week. This trip is more focused on the recipients of scholarships and how their lives have been affected. The stories we capture here are for a project with Save One Life, so I can't share the individual stories because they will have a home on the Save One Life website when they are all cut together, but what I can speak to and what I'm excited to speak about is my own personal experience. I put up a good facade, but I am a shy person. It takes days for me to warm up to a new place and new people, I prefer to hold a camera or audio recorder and be a fly on the wall or a piece of furniture unnoticed until the time is right for me to emerge and show my true personality. I'm like a rabbit in that way. When I was in college, I got a rabbit, and I took him to my parents' house, and we let him out in the living room, and at first he ran underneath this bench, and he stayed there for a while, watching us, and then he took one step out, and then he ran right back under the bench again. After a few minutes, he took two steps out, and then bolted back under the bench and then three, back under the bench, four, back under the bench, until eventually the rabbit had worked his way into feeling safe and was just able to hang out and run around and do rabbit things. A week ago, I was hidden in my work, taking one step out to smile and say hello, only to run back away far into my focus of getting everything just right. Seven days later, I found myself giving a small speech at the dinner table, a feat which had my heart pumping out of my chest and my voice shaking. But it was imperative to me that these people know what an impact they had
11: on me. When I'm traveling, I stay present by kind of focusing on the work, I guess, you know, solving problems and making sure the shoot can go as planned is my job, and that's the kind of challenge I like to do and I like to attack. This is Rob, COO of Believe and our lead producer on the trip. So when we have a good crew around us and we're humming on all cylinders, we really can't be stopped. We, we can run into whatever problems and um, and tackle them pretty easily. So I find that I don't really have an issue staying present. I kind of love floating that floating on top of that wave of the moment pretty easily.
10: What about separating like the experience from capturing the experience? Do you ever struggle with that?
11: I don't really struggle with that. I think it's all one and the same. I've never really divided the two up in my brain. The only time capturing the experience gets in the way is when I feel like perhaps I'm shooting something on my own or maybe it's just me and one other person. And we have to split our brains into so many different job positions and tasks that need to be handled that I don't really get to focus on what's actually occurring. But... Like I said earlier, when we have a good crew around us, I don't really have an issue with that.
10: I'm lactose intolerant, and that serves as a great excuse for avoiding having tea or coffee in Kenya. Because most people that I've interacted with take their hot drinks with lots of milk and sugar. It's a barrier that I willingly use to avoid being a part of the group until I'm comfortable. What's kind of silly about that is the moment I join the group, I'm really happy that I did. On day one in Kenya, I was planning to sit in the van while Rob and Amy had tea with the subject we had just filmed, and I was going to pack gear and then just kind of enjoy the scenery out the van window. But after a bit, I realized that it was pretty rude to not even come up to their home and say goodbye, so I wandered back up the red dirt road, through the blue metal door that I had hit my head on four times already today, and would again by the time I left, and up the two flights of stairs to the balcony. I could hear laughter inside, and with the white, sheer fabric hanging in the doorframe blowing in the breeze between us, I took a deep breath and stepped inside. Everyone gave a little, hey, like there he is, and after refusing to take a seat from one of the board members, I found a corner to lean myself into, the perfect hideaway. The conversation that was taking place was about accents, and how the various American accents from the movies seemed so exaggerated to the people of Kenya. Rob and I ended auditioning a few of them for the group from Texas and Chicago, Boston, Minnesota, New Orleans, to rambunctious fits of laughter.
2: When I travel internationally, I stay present by reading every day and making sure that I take time for stillness and also to push my boundaries with people that I meet.
10: You know Amy co-host of the Bloodstream podcast and our interviewer on this trip. Well, this is her talking.
2: I am an introvert at heart, and so to introduce myself to the people that I meet and to hear their stories is a way that I stay present when I travel here internationally. I think the biggest barrier for me is my anxiety and my exhaustion, which at times are interlinked. So when I travel internationally, it's very important for me to maintain a schedule, to get sleep, to not drink alcohol as much as possible, in order for me to be the best that I can be every day.
10: Day two, I started meaningfully listening in on conversations in the van. The people who are with us were curious about the realities of America versus what they see in the movies. And likewise, Rob and Amy were curious about life in Kenya. The conversation was fascinating and had a natural drive that didn't die down for the entire week, even as some people parted ways and other new people joined. I think that present might be my default and that I have to remind myself that there's a bigger
1: picture and objective than, than the other way around.
10: It's just easy to get caught up in the, in the details and the feelings and the experience for me. This is Brad speaking, a DP from New York who films with us on most of our international trips.
1: There's always a little bit of apprehension in going places where you just know that you're not going to blend in. It's totally new and uh, and people are going to be a little bit suspicious and, you know, curious about new things. But then then once you sort of get past that initial little oil on top of water moment and start getting to know people, it's it's... Amazing. It's just, uh, I'm so grateful I've had the opportunity to, to get around the globe a little bit and meet a bunch of new folks.
10: I'd say it was day three when I started to take breaks from filming out the van window to engaging conversations happening around me. Day four, I started having my own personal interactions with people separate from the rest of the group. I started asking my own questions and sharing the vlogs I was posting on TikTok with people in the van and talking about my personal life. It took most of the time I was here to realize it, but the truth was, this is what I wanted all along. The process of finding my place in Kenya took some time, but by the end, I felt like I had truly bonded with several people here. I understood what life was actually like in Nairobi and the surrounding communities, the challenges they are facing, and how financial help from Save One Life has changed things significantly for some people living with bleeding disorders here. When I gave my speech at the dinner table, with the whole room looking at me, my heart beating a thousand kilometers per hour, I said something along the lines of, I live with a lot of emotion, so if I talk too long, it'll come out. But I just wanted to say that these trips, they aren't always easy. In fact, they can be quite challenging. But the people from the Hemophilia Society have made it easy to capture the stories here. I like to find joy in all that I do. I'm always seeking joy wherever I can find it, and the people of Kenya brought that joy from day one with their warmth and hospitality. I said something like that. As the night ended, we parted ways. After much hugging and shaking of hands and boisterous laughter at subtle inside jokes that you can only relate to if you've traveled a country by van with a handful of people, It was impossible to ignore the sense of loss that was about to wash over us all as a monumental moment of our lives came to a close. I know I may see some of these people again at conferences, on Zoom calls, and especially in the videos we captured, but leaving Kenya felt a little bit like leaving home. This isn't goodbye. I'll see you later. And now as I sit in a new hotel room, in a new country, just halfway through our journey here in Africa, I'm a tiny bit fearful of starting over this week in Uganda. That's just me being honest. I am who I am, and it takes a moment for me to settle in. We are all different, and so the experience for Rob will be vastly different from Amy, and Brad will be different from me. But in the end, I'm just really grateful to have the opportunity to help capture all of these stories. To sit in the van and connect human to human. To look out the window as we pass endless bumpy dirt roads filled with millions of individuals all living their own full lives that I will only understand a minute fraction of in the split second I pass by their meat shop, farm, or electronic repair store. The real blessing is that I get to visit some of their houses and spend a few hours talking and eating fruit and seeing the homes of their families. And beyond that little bit of fear that I'm feeling is excitement that I get to try again with all that I've learned from the last trip. Thank you to Rob, Brad, and Amy for sharing today and to Patrick and Amy for giving me the space to talk about these things. Talking can be so healing. If you wanna learn more about mental health, go to letstalkmh.com and click resources. Next episode, Jessica will dive deeper into being present on her segment, The Well, and as for us, let's talk next month.
0: Thank you, Josh, for another excellent installment of our Let's Talk Mental Health segment. And thank you again to Sanofi for your support on that. Visit ShareYourWhy.com to meet the Sanofi core team and hear from them and members of the community about their story and passion for the hemophilia community. James, it was a pleasure to do this here with you today. It certainly was. I enjoyed it, and thanks again for having me today. I don't know. Amy Board may have lost her job. Uh, We may have to... I'm kicking her out the studio next time. This was really, really smooth, and I I feel very good. There were no remarks that made me feel less than. Amy bored. <laughs> oh, that's true. I've oh, got to hurry up and get to that. Okay, we got two episodes next month, October 14th and the 28th. In theory, Amy and I will be back together again. No, it doesn't mean you won't hear from James. At the, we'll see what happens. Stay mm-hmm. tuned. A big shout out to our presenting sponsor, Takeda, along with shout outs to our additional partners on today's episode, CSL Bearing, Sanofi, and Pfizer. And with that, that is all for this episode. Reminder to subscribe to the Bloodstream Podcast wherever you listen and to share this episode with friends, family and colleagues have a bleeding disorder or health topic you'd like to hear us discuss
1: is there an expert or guest that you're dying to hear from want to inquire about storytelling or casting opportunities for bloodstream podcasts or believe limited films email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com or connect with bloodstream media on all social media platforms you'll find bloodstream media on facebook instagram and twitter or you can follow amy board or patrick james lynch on facebook Twitter, Instagram,
0: or LinkedIn.
1: And you can follow your new favorite host, James Maple, on Instagram or LinkedIn.
0: I am your maybe not favorite host, but I am your host, Patrick James Lynch. And
1: I am, again, your new favorite host and new best friend and host for today, James Maple. And
0: until next time, take self-care of yourself. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.